I still think radio is probably the greatest entertainment medium ever invented. It made the audience work. And I think television audiences don't have to work, and that's why they fall asleep half of the time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I really love it. And I, I really think that the commercial people, you know, whoever they are who say whether we work or don't work, are making a big mistake. California, where you drive enormous distances, I have that radio on all the time. And I'd like to hear something good. I really love it. When we finally did the last suspense show in Hollywood, and it was all the people that you know who've been on every show you've ever heard from Hollywood in the old days. We were all sitting around, and finally Virginia Gregg, who was one of the great ladies of radio, and she looked around, and she said, isn't it awful? She said, isn't it awful? She said, oh, God, if only television was going out and radio was coming in. <laughs> and it is true, too. We all felt that. We were a family. We still are very, very close. Janet Waldo and I are very close friends, Ginny, Greg, Alvia Allman. Mm -hmm. It was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from, and they were dear, wonderful people on television. I think the you ideal know, medium for a performer, because if 12 million people were listening, you were giving 12 million performances. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it's the people bad. in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. Uh, we were rather on very good terms with ourselves, satisfied with what we could do. Indeed, I think there were some very good actors among radio actors. actors who the president of Mutual Broadcasting and Competing Network sent a telegram to Paley saying, when radio distinguishes itself in this fashion, it is good for the entire industry, and we want to congratulate you and thank you, and you know, that kind of CBS. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work, and did work, seven days a week. Does the name Chick Vincent mean anything to you? No. Chick was a director of radio and producer of radio programs in the early days. I haven't seen Chick in a long time. I know he's still active. And Chick used to direct out on the floor, right there with the mm -hmm. actors. He would wear cans and work right on the floor. And I've forgotten whether it was uh, Nick Carter or whatever, whatever whodunit it was. At one point, the gunfight is supposed to ensue, or the guy is supposed to come up and pull the trigger, and the sound effects man pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. And Chick just said, Bang! <laughs> <laughs> True story! Oh. True story! <laughs> Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 72. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we're going to tell some of the story of the American radio drama's last decade on the air through one of the last remaining shows on the air, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, one, thank you, and two, you can find Breaking Walls on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, 
specifically on iTunes, I'd love a rating and review. It helps the algorithm and helps more people discover this show. If you want to be kept easily abreast of the goings-on with this show, join our Facebook group by searching for The Wall Breakers on Facebook. If you join the group, you'll get notifications whenever there are wall-breaking things occurring. We're also on most forms of social media as well at The Wall Breakers. And by the way, The Wall Breakers Unity t-shirt line, which uses the slang names of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst New Yorkers near and far, it can be found at thewallbreakers.com shop. If you're listening to this show in real time, Happy New Year. Today is January 1st, 2018. I hope that 2018 brings you health, wealth, and lots of happiness felt. Did you know that as of 2017, according to Edison Research, 112 million American people have listened to a podcast and 42 million of us tune in at least once a week and a quarter of us tune in at least five times per week. As the medium grows, we're seeing between a 10 and 20% consumption rise year over year. And we're seeing the largest growth among 25 to 54 year olds, with 31% of all Americans in this age group tuning in. These statistics are those that they should be proud of if you're producing podcasts. All of us should be. But for audio in America, this is nothing new. My name is Barrymore. I'm one of several actors gathered in the studio in California near shores that face an enemy across an ocean now Pacific in name only. We are here tonight to join the 130 million fellow Americans in praise of a document that men have fought for, that men are fighting for, that men will keep on fighting for as long as freedom is a strong word falling sweet upon the ear. This is the beginning of a program called We Hold These Truths, which originally aired on December 15, 1941, the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Written by Norman Corwin, this show took place eight days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and Manila that officially pulled the United States into World War II. It was broadcast over the four combined major radio networks of America. At the time, this was the Columbia Broadcasting System, NBC Red, NBC Blue, and the Mutual Broadcasting System. As Mr. Barrymore mentioned, in 1941, there were 130 million Americans, 60 million tuned in to hear We Hold These Truths. The program had the largest listenership of any in broadcasting history. To put it into context, the first Super Bowl to surpass this amount of raw viewers was Super Bowl XI in 1977, in which 62 million people tuned in. Except that those 62 million people were from a population of 220 million Americans, almost 90 million more Americans for just 2 million more viewers. Podcasting still has a long way to go to catch up to these kinds of ratings, but the medium is well on its way because the medium is still audio. A podcast is a transcribed, on-demand piece of listening. The only thing that's changed is how we consume and where we consume our shows. Now, instead of sitting in front of the radio by the fireside, we consume information audibly on the go. On today's program, you're going to hear many distinct voices. Let's introduce some of these interviewers to whom I'm in a great debt. Chuck Shaden. We've taken our Those Were the Days microphones out to the Pheasant Run Playhouse in St. Charles, Illinois, where Hans Conried is starring in Norman Is That You? right now through February 7th. And if you haven't gotten out here yet, you better mark that date on your calendar because you wouldn't want to miss... Chuck interviewed members man. of the radio community for almost 40 years and was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in 1993 
with Norman Corwin, the aforementioned writer. He still runs his own site, speakingofradio.com, where you can find tons of his old interviews to stream for free or to purchase for less than $3 a piece. Here's Dan Hayfley. In August of 1987, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy hosted a storytelling Q&A at the Thousand Oaks Library in Today California. our guest is a man who has been involved in writing, directing, but would you welcome officially Jack Johnstone. And now here's Dick Bertel. Good evening, and with me once again is radio collector, historian, Ed Corcoran. Ed, our guest tonight is a very familiar voice. Well, Dick, uh, ever since we started the show, there's one Dick fellow we Bertel always wanted. and the late Ed Corcoran hosted the Hartford, Connecticut-based Golden Age radio program for WTIC in the 1970s. They interviewed numerous stars, and like Chuck Shaden, we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Ed Corcoran for finding, saving, and cataloging so many of the shows from the 1930s and 50s. And finally, you'll be hearing from John Dunning, who hosted his own old-time radio program in Denver on 71K News Talk Radio in the 1980s and wrote On the Air, the encyclopedia of old-time radio. Empire run twice. We ran it two years. And as a result, an actor by the name of Bob Bailey became very well-known in Denver. Uh, one of the things that we kept getting called about was where is Bob Bailey and uh, is he still alive? What is he doing? And can we write to him? In 1947, there were 40 million radios in the United States and only 44,000 television sets. NBC began broadcasting television in 1944. The Dumont Television Network launched in 1946 and CBS and ABC launched in 1948. By 1951, television network reception stretched from the east to west coast in the U.S. and for a short time, the major networks operated both radio and television feeds with equal weight put towards each. However, keeping both mediums equally afloat created a major resource drain for the networks. Here's actor Hans Conrad talking about what really happened when that became something that the networks could no longer sustain. A irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see. But on that occasion, the, tele the radio industry had only to turn to its sponsors and say, we have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now. So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors very understandingly nodded their head and bought the new product. Those actors of us who had been made our living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor that said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to, yes, yeah, surely. You had to destroy it. It's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the, the well one in order to make chicken soup. We were discussing earlier in the early 1950s when radio suddenly grew up. Just as it was dying, do you foresee a future at all for radio drama? Because it has always impressed me that way, too, that right about 1953, radio really came of age and became a legitimate art form just as its demise came along. Well, I saw it 
badly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn. Uh, program after program were taken off the air, and suddenly there was, you know, there was no radio drama at all, though there were a couple of attempts, but they didn't mount anything. Finally, there was just nothing as far as radio drama went. It was a sad thing, uh, because I do think it had finally grown up, and I hated to see it die. And because television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time, and particularly with on stage, radio really grew up and put on long pants. It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying. That was John Dunning with writer E. Jack Newman, who had hundreds of radio, television, and film scripts to his credit. After the 1953-54 radio season came to a close, the major radio networks began to rapidly pull funding from the medium. Shows were canceled, the big stars went to television, and production budgets were slashed. Take, for example, the production quality differences between these two openings of the show's suspense. The first is from 1946, and the second is from 1959. R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, present Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. What radio of the second half of the 1950s did have was improved audio technology and lots of openings for hungry actors, writers, directors, and producers looking to creatively push the medium forward. Which brings us to yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents a thrilling new adventure series starring Dick Powell. This is from an audition tape prepared in early December of 1948, starring Dick Powell. I'm an insurance investigator. My name is Johnny Dollar. What? You heard me, Johnny Dollar, and I can pad an expense account with the best of them. Powell decided to take another role, Richard Diamond, private detective, and two months later, Charles Russell was cast in the title role. by investigator Johnny Dollar. To Home Office, East Coast Underwriters, Terminal Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of my expenditures and the investigation regarding the Paracorp policy for your company. Expense account... Russell lasted until January of 1950 when Edmund O'Brien took over. Expense account item one, $73.87, transportation to Denver, Colorado. Expense account item two, $2.30, taxi fare from airport to police headquarters, where I spent a few minutes... O'Brien, in turn, lasted until 1952 when John Lund became dollar. Expense account item one, $134.70. Airfare and incidentals between Hartford and Miami. Waiting at the airport... Lund held the role until September 19, 1954, when the show was canceled.
The first Yours Truly Johnny Dollar run did enjoy some success. There were at least $230 episodes recorded between 1949 and 1954. Each of the original three dollars had their strong points, though overall the series lacked defining characteristics and even a defining time slot. Since much of the show's run was unsponsored, it was moved frequently by CBS. The show was able to get sponsorship from Wrigley's Gum in the summer of 1950, and again between March of 1953 and August of 1954, which seems significant since, as Hans Conried mentioned, the 53-54 season was the last in which the networks were pumping resources into their radio shows. After the last Wrigley show, the unsponsored John Lund Dollar wrapped up its run. Perhaps this would have been it for Dollar. But in the summer of 1955, in an attempt to increase listenership amidst the rapidly shrinking radio budgets and audiences, CBS radio executives planned to revive a once popular programming format, the five-night-a-week, 15-minute serial. This format would give the writers time to develop their characters more fully, and each episode could end on a cliffhanger to help ensure that the listener wanted to come back the next night. Because the show had no sponsor and was being sustained by CBS, it wouldn't have a large budget, but CBS did have a lot of talent at their disposal to employ. Jack Johnstone, a radio veteran going back to his days in New York with Superman, was brought in to direct. I directed in the studio, wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up, or maybe all of them, then they all sped up and then the next signal was, as you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. Sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS over the other networks, simply because of the personnel involved. They were far more interested in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. He never went in the booth. He directed as they did 400 years ago. He'd put mm -hmm. earphones on at his own booth and stood right in the studio with you, which most of us found <laughs> extremely annoying. He was a very affable man, but he, uh, I said, gosh, hey, the, your credit should read directed and conducted by, because he, <laughs> he'd wave and point and whatnot, and he insisted on certain weird techniques that after a while you rebelled at, but if you wanted to work, you did it. <laughs> Amerigo Marino, who later led the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra between 1964 and 1984, was tabbed as conductor. And, in August of 1955, former Philip Marlowe star and radio and film veteran Gerald Moore produced an audition tape as Dollar. Three things interfered with sleep that night. The pleading in the eyes of the girl. The smells and sounds that drifted into my room from the restless, crowded city. And the watcher who was still at his station across the street when I turned out my light. There was only one problem, though. The always busy Moore couldn't take the role. So, new auditions were held the next month. Among those who read for the unsponsored show were radio mainstays like Paul Dubov, Larry Thor, Jack Moyles, Tony Barrett, Vic Perrin, and the man they selected. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. 
Mr. Dollar, this is Father Taggart. I'm calling you from Ossining. I'm one of the chaplains here at Sing Sing. Oh, yes, sir. What can I do for you, Father? Well, nothing for me, Mr. Dollar, but possibly for someone else. Michael Cairn, one of our inmates, asked me to contact you. Michael Cairn? Mm-hmm. You remember him? He wasn't sure you would. Old-time grifter and con man who got tied up with an insurance fraud a few years ago, blonde fella? Yes. Well, Michael wants to see you, Mr. Dollar. Could you possibly find the time to come up here? Oh, well, I don't know, Father. Is this something important? It is to Michael. Oh, well, uh, look, I'll be in New York sometime next month. Maybe I'll get a chance to stop off. Well, couldn't you possibly make it sooner? What's the rush? He's going to be there quite a while, isn't he? Not very long, I'm afraid. Michael is dying. All right, Father, you can expect me. Welcome to Johnny Dollar. Beginning tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Ed Barth, Controller's Office. This is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Though you didn't authorize the investigation, Ed, I'm sure that once the facts are out, you will honor the following. Expense account, item one, $7.95. Train fare and incidentals, Hartford to Austin, New York. I was admitted inside the prison and greeted by Father Taggart. He's a tall, mild-looking man, a Jesuit, I believe. He had a pass already for me, and he led me straight to the prison infirmary. Just in here. Michael will certainly appreciate your coming, Mr. Dollar. I hope it satisfies whatever's on his mind. I can't imagine what it would be. You know it was my investigation and testimony that put him in here, Father. He told me all about that, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with why he wants to see you. See, his lungs started to go about two years ago, and there's just been no way to arrest the condition. Does he know how close he is? Oh, yes. He's not afraid to die. Here we are, Mr. Dollar. Oh. What? Hardly the same man I remember, Father. He's had it bad lately. Lost a great deal of weight. Yeah. Asleep? Yes. Michael. Michael! Oh. Hi, Father. I brought someone to see you. What did he say? Hiya, Mike. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks, Johnny. Thank Father Taggart here. Yeah. He's an all right guy, Johnny. It's just like you. I always said you were the best insurance cop. <coughs> here, here, what's all this? I'm kicking out, Johnny. Didn't you tell him, Father? He told me, Mike. <laughs> Guess I didn't live right. I'll be back in a little while. Thanks, Father. You take it easy, Mike. <laughs> yeah, lousy place to die, prison. But I ain't got my choice, thanks to you. Well, it's just that you picked to do a couple of things that the law and some insurance companies didn't agree with, Mike. Uh, I don't hold none of that against you. The guy does what he does. I, I don't know how to tell you this. <coughs> Maybe I better get the doctor. You shouldn't be talking so much. No, no, wait. Johnny, look, you know I'm no crybaby. When the doctor gave me the news, I, I got to thinking. I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. You know it's just that... I had a wife once, a long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah. Then I just kind of drifted out of her picture one day. And... <coughs> Ain't got a cough drop, baby. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess it wouldn't cure what I got. Anyhow, I, I got to do something for her before I... Well, Johnny, I lay here and I get myself an idea. Yeah, Mike? Johnny, if there was some real easy money lying around, would you pick it up for me? Depends on how clean it is, Mike, and where it's lying. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It, 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 well, it's clean, all right. You can find that out for yourself. All right. Now, now listen. Till they moved me down here in the infirmary, I roomed upstairs with Jojo Penny. You know him? No, don't believe I do. And Carthy from the Hay States. He got his sabbatical three weeks ago. Paroled. Uh-huh. Well, I've been in the camp with a lot of guys, but Jojo Penny <laughs> takes a cake. He's got a little old five-year trick to put in. <laughs> this Jojo, he does it like a vacation. You know, a real picnic. <laughs> Every time he gets a chance out in the yard, he's taking sun. So he don't get the color, see? Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> when they push him in with me, I notice this. And I get to going over in my head. Yeah. Why does a guy whistle in a cell block, Johnny? Why, why is he treating it like a rest home? Short term. He's got something outside waiting. That's it, baby. He's got something waiting for him outside. Something that he knows will keep safe. Money. Thought you said this was legitimate, Mike. It is, it is. Now, wait. I didn't ask Jojo anything about this. No, I figured it out myself. Then a couple of times I hear him yelling in his sleep. McCormick, he yells. McCormick. Eh? Makes sense now, Johnny? Not yet. Ah. The big heist, Johnny, the big heist. A few years ago, a rich guy named McCormick out on Long Island or someplace like that gets turned over for $100,000 worth of jewelry. You remember? Vaguely. Eh, well, I'm thinking that Jojo Penny was in on it somewhere. Mm. Else why would he be singing and whistling and chilling himself around this fly trap for five years? Else why would he be talking about that when he's sleeping? McCormick, McCormick. Yeah. Maybe you've got something, Mike. Ah, I know I got something, Johnny. And you got something, too. It... <laughs> oh, no, Mike. Take it easy. Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't you see? The insurance company must have a reward out. They always do. A reward. Yeah, but Mike, look... I tell you, Joe Joe is the ginzo that done the job. Or he knows who did it. So, you look into it. Work on it. Maybe turn up the stuff and get the reward. Good, clean coin. Yeah. Yeah. Send half of it to my old lady, will you? You keep the rest yourself. What do you say? Huh? Will you? Ego factati mihi ad apostolia, sedi tributa indulgentiam plenarium. Mike Kern died three hours later. The last living thing he did was wink at me. Not only did Johnny Dollar have something, Bob Bailey did too. The show immediately developed a following. Most of the episodes began with an insurance executive calling Johnny to investigate an unusual claim. Often, these insurance executives would be reoccurring characters in their own right, like Joe McNabb of Northeast Indemnity, or Tom Wilkins of Amalgamated Life, or Pat McCracken of the Universal Adjustment Bureau, who is usually voiced by Larry Dobkin. Johnny Dollar. Pat McCracken, Universal Adjustment Bureau, Johnny. Well, long time, Pat. What's on your mind? At the moment, 120000 bucks. Hey, you're really thinking big these days. No, correction. Worrying big. Well, I guess if I had 120,000 clams, I'd worry too. Look, if we had it, I wouldn't be worrying. So who does have it? 
Thomas Chase. Come again. A partner in the New York Investment Syndicate, Everson and Chase. Real dignified outfit up till now. Chase embezzled the money? We think so. So what do you want with me? I'm no expert in forcing confessions. Johnny, you can't make a guy confess if you can't find him. Oh? Chase has jumped his bail. He's disappeared. I'll be right over. Johnny worked on every kind of case imaginable, from tracking down missing beneficiaries and lost policyholders, investigating fraudulent claims, missing jewels or manufacturing accidents, and even the occasional arson and mayhem. Dollar would itemize his expenses as he went. As John C. Abbott, the author of the Who is Johnny Dollar matter, stated in his book, a close listening reveals that, in addition to expenses, Dollar's pay was tied to the face value of the policy or goods stolen. In the case of a stolen item, there was a fee based on the insured value of the property recovered. In the case of a fraudulent or null and void policy, Johnny got a percentage of the face value of the policy itself. His legendary ability to pad his expense account was a show-running gag, but because of his reputation as the best insurance cop in the country, the insurance executives didn't seem to mind. Pat McCracken, Johnny, returning your call. Oh, hi, Pat. How's Southern California? My vacation on expense account? I love it. Well, don't overdo it. Just because the Jolly Roger matter interfered with that vacation you'd planned is no Now, wait a minute. You promise. Full expenses. (laughs) Okay. When are you coming back to Hartford? As soon as I clear up the Lamar case. Want okay expenses on it now? Huh? Lamont? Yeah, Pat. This is a case that'll make your hair curl. The weekly five-part episodes debuted with the McCormick Matter on October 3rd, 1955 at 8.15 p.m. on CBS Radio. The weeknight 15-minute serial format allowed for 75 minutes of showtime, which gave CBS producer, director, and often script author Jack Johnstone over three times the amount of minutes to build and humanize show characters from the normal half-hour weekly format. Here's Jack Johnstone talking about writers Les Crutchfield and E. Jack Newman. Les was far and away the finest writer of the bunch, in my humble opinion. John Dawson. E. Jack Newman? E. Jack Newman. Right. Yeah, that's his real name. E. Jack. He had written a lot of scripts for previous Johnny Dollar series. And when CBS decided to do the series again, they asked him for scripts. And he took some of the old half-hour scripts that he'd previously written and broke them down into five 15-minute shows. They asked me to direct the things. He wrote excellent scripts. Les Crutchfield wrote beautiful scripts. Sidney Marshall wrote some great scripts. A couple of other writers participated in the series. But then television began to beckon and began to pay about five times as much as CBS could pay, and they became just unavailable. And finally, one day, I sat down at the typewriter and decided I'd better write a script in an awful hurry. This was the Laird Douglas Douglas of Heatherscope. Following is the final report in my investigation of the Laird Douglas Douglas of Heatherscope matter. Laird Douglas Douglas of Heatherscope was a dog. And I had a dog at the time named Lady Odidi's Rolimar Mim. Believe it or not. So I finally cooked up this wild story involving these two characters, and it wasn't until the last episode of the five that they were revealed to be dogs, you see. But that's when I took over the writing, but E. Jack Newman wrote a great many of the original first scripts during the time when it was a 15-minute show five What weeks. do you remember about the changing character of Johnny Dollar when Bob Bailey took over the Well, role? of course, I knew nothing of the show until I took over. I'd never even heard it. I knew John Lund, but I'd used him on Hollywood Star Playhouse or one of those shows. 
and Eddie O'Brien. Eddie incidentally called me one day after Bob Bailey took over and said, would you give me Bob Bailey's phone number? I just want to tell you and tell him that I think he's doing one hell of a great job and so much better than anything I could have done that it's... <laughs> which was very nice. Bob Bailey's popularity as Johnny Dollar was evident within a few short weeks. Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Before I do that, please let me say thanks to all of you who are so kind about writing and telling us how much you like Johnny Dollar. It's a very gratifying experience. It's encouragement to all of us who are involved in production of the program, and, well, we appreciate your letters more than you know. As always, I'll try to answer you promptly, but sometimes the mail does pile up. In any event, thanks. Thanks very much for writing. Next week... A yacht that wasn't there, and a man who wasn't there. They never were, but that's where I found them. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Over the course of the next year, 55 of these serials were produced. Most were five parts, with the exception of two. The Cranesburg Matter, a six-parter, which began on Friday, August 24, 1956, because the broadcasted Republican National Convention for the 1956 presidential election was held from Monday through Thursday that week, and the nine-part Phantom Chase Matter, which aired in October of 1956. All of these were recorded in Hollywood. In the early 1980s, John Dunning interviewed Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta Goodwin. She spoke about her experiences with her father in the recording studio. I studio with my father when I had my learner's permit. He went down Sunday. We lived in Pacific Palisades. It was about a 20-mile drive down to Hollywood, down to the big Canex Studios on Hollywood Boulevard. Now they've been turned into uh, the CBS television studios when radio went out. But then I uh, would drive him down and stay with him the whole day while they got the show ready to go on the air during the week. I enjoyed being down there, and I think he was kind of hoping that I, the business showbiz bug would bite. It just never quite took. Many actors and actresses don't wish that for their children. It's kind of a, a reversal of what you normally hear. Well, my grandmother and grandfather were both in the acting business, and so uh, I guess he was hoping that it would pass on to the next generation. He was born literally in a trunk, was on the stage by the time he was a year and a half old, was out in front selling theater bills for five dollars a week when he was around eight years old. So he came from a long line. You say he was born literally in a trunk? How did that take Half place? Age in a trunk when uh, my grandma and grandpa were on the road. They played in Virginia City, Piper's Opera House. They were in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. So that was before he was born, but later they were still performing long after he was born. And also his brother was in show business, Edwin Bailey. He produced Truth or Consequences all the time it was on the air. He left Chicago to come out here under contract for 20th Century Fox. And he worked for 20th Century Fox, I guess, for a couple of years. During the war years, he was there. Then he went on to radio to do Let George Do It. Which you played George Valentine. Standard of California and he did that on Don Lee, wasn't it? Don Lee Network? Let George do it. KJ, and that was downtown. All the big radio stations were within about a four block area. Everybody sort of ate at the same restaurant and 
it was a, the group mixed together that one would work at one station. A lot of times I have a couple of the old scripts here, and I see where old people like Virginia Gregg and uh, Jack Crucian, they were on several shows, most of them as a matter of fact. People would just work the same show. One of Bob's most frequent female show counterparts was Virginia Gregg. Did you freelance most of the time through this period? Well, in uh, radio days, yeah, that's what you did. Mm -hmm. I was doing as high as five shows a day. But I did mm -hmm. Brooksy with Bob Bailey. On, uh, uh, on uh, Let George Do It. Yeah, and I also did... You worked with him on Johnny Dollar, too, I think, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, usually. How soon in advance would you get a script for you a You never got a script in advance. Didn't get one uh -uh. when they rehearsed it. In the early like, days, you went in and you had a conference, a story conference, and a a read through mm -hmm. and you'd say well I don't think she would say this or wouldn't it be better if and you could talk a show over and have a first read through mm -hmm. when radio kind of faded out toward the end there mm -hmm. particularly with Jack now Jack Webb really did have a stock company he used the same people and so did Jack Johnstone pretty much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They would say such things as, now next week you're doing an Irish, and I'd say, I don't do Irish, and they'd say, sure you do. <laughs> and I would get it, and you do Irish. You living doll. Meg. A fine, fine husband, he's going to make me too. That's why I made him the beneficiary of my life insurance policy. That's exactly what I want to talk to you about. Then go ahead and talk. What's stopping you standing there like a banty rooster that doesn't know... Will you yet? shut up? Another female counterpart was Shirley Mitchell, Perhaps you remember her as Marion Strong on Isle of Lucy. <laughs> oh, now, come on, Lucy. Tell me what you think of it. I am serious. It's horrible. <laughs> it was the most glorious time. I'm sure you've gotten that from every radio actor, haven't you? Yes, virtually everyone we've spoken to has said the same thing. It was really the best of Incredible. times. Even Incredible. people who have certainly gone into even greater success in television. Right. They've always said it was so great because, first of all, you didn't have to deal with the That's makeup right. and That's the costumes right. and all of that, even though you did dress oh, uh, we for dressed. a nighttime sure, show. Sure, sure. And we were a family. Mm -hmm. We still are very, very close. Janet Waldo and I are very close friends. Ginny, Greg, Alvia Allman. Mm -hmm. It was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from, and they were dear, wonderful people. In television, you know, you do a show. Sit down, Mr. Dollar. Okay, sure. There's a reward posted for William Charles, isn't there, for that Todd matter? That's right, $5,000. Well, I get it if I turn him over to the police. Not all of it. Half of it goes to an ex-convict who tipped me off in the first place. Half? Yes. You don't seem very anxious to get him. Oh, we're anxious, but that's the way it is. This other half of the 5000 is spoken for. I want to get something else straight. What happens to me? What do you mean? I've known he had a part in that Todd matter for a long while. I haven't said anything. Does that make me a party to it or something? I don't know. Well, this is going to get me in trouble. If I have to spend the money for lawyers to keep out of jail, I don't want any part of it. All right. My company will cover that part. Now, where's Charles? Not so fast. I better have something in writing. Something that says your insurance company will pay me a reward and give me help if I get in trouble. I'll talk to them. I'm thinking of the future. I'm going to have one once this is over. Are you? Yes. Yes, I am. Now, how long will it take you to arrange this? Oh, about an hour. I can do it by phone, I guess. That'll be fine. Who are you? Melva Charles. His wife? Yes, that's right. $2,500. Not much for a husband. He's not much of a husband. He was once, but then he had to give away a mink coat and spend time away from me. 
I see. I doubt it. You people hardly ever see anything. We try. You make the arrangements. I'll meet you again in, say, two hours. Two hours. I gave her a 50-second start before I left the table. When I got out on the street, I was just in time to see her climb into a cab. I was trying to hail one to follow her when a black coupe pulled up to the curbing. Come on in, baby. Hey, Mapes. Get in. The light's changing. Drama without information is dull, and uh, information without drama is dull. I like to provoke an audience. I like to make them think, if I can. I like to think a little myself. I hate to be cliché. It imposes on the actor the necessity to create everything, to create the sets, to create the costumes, to create the expressions, to create everything. And I think one of the great drawbacks of television is that so much of it is just sort of visualized radio shows where they ought to really write television shows. Uh, we were rather on very good terms with ourselves, satisfied with what we could do. Indeed, I think there were some very good actors among radio actors, actors who unfortunately never extended, when radio died, never did anything else. Perhaps they did not look, which was a big yeah. disadvantage, they did not look as they sounded, you see. In the early 1980s, when John Dunning interviewed Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta Goodwin, he asked her about some of the people she remembered acting with her father on those CBS shows in the late 1950s. Some of the people on Vincent Price did that show a lot. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Vincent Price. I'm calling from Hollywood. Oh, sure. My name's Shirley Temple. Now, who is it and what... Really, Vincent Price? Do I sound like Mickey Rooney? Well, no. But now, tell me, Mr. Price. Now, look, the name is Vincent. Okay, Vincent. What can I do for you? Johnny, I have a little problem in connection with one of my paintings insured for $100,000. $100,000? You call that a little problem? This painting has suddenly disappeared. Oh, I see. What's the insurance company? Four State Mutual. Oh, well, they have a small branch office right there in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. But Bert Parker, the man who sold me the policy and should take care of this matter, well, every time I've called him, he's been out. And I learned just this morning that nobody knows where he is. Okay, Vincent, I'll grab the first plane. And, well, like I said, Virginia Gregg did it. And an actor named Stacy Harris, he went on to be in television, played a bad guy all the time. He's one of those people, if you saw him, you'd know him right away, but you don't know his name. Dollar, I may as well tell you that I saw you come out of my cottage a few minutes ago. I figured you knew. So ever since you sat down here, I've been holding a gun on you under the table. You know, Cooper, I may as well tell you. Ever since I sat down here, I've been holding a gun on you, too. Well, you... Larry Goskin, he went on to play a bad guy in a lot of television series. Oh, yes, I think I do. Uh, you know, I thought a lot about coming out and killing you, Dollar. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm going to do you a favor. Yeah? Yeah. I think maybe you and I can work out something. You know, this sounds like double talk to me. Don't you give me any routine, Dollar. I heard them all. And there was Forrest Lewis. And I was looking at the script. There's a very young actor here, Dick Crenna. Mm-hmm. And we all know that he went on the television. We just heard Dick Crenna on this show about a half hour ago on Armis Brooks. Right, right. Well, he was doing Dad's show then, too. Whatever possessed God in heaven to make a man like Rambo. God didn't make Rambo. I made him. Who the hell are you? Sam Trotman. Colonel Samuel Trotman. 
Look, we're a little busy this morning. Was he Colonel, doing uh, adult parts or mostly kids? Oh, he was way down in the script. <laughs> doing what they called, I guess, bit parts, support parts. I believe in one of the Johnny Dollars that we played, Dick Crenna turns up as kind of a teenage hood or hoodlum. Well, you know better than to come in a joint like this. But I want to talk to you, Eddie. I can talk to me at home. Go on, get her out of here, will you, mister? It might be a good idea if you listen to her first. I thought it was her that wanted to talk to me. There were so many. There were the two formats. There was the half-hour format. And then there were the five-series formats. The five-a-week format was just great radio. Expense account item two, $14.20. Train fare and incidentals, Ossining to New York. I arrived at 2.15, dropped my bag off at the New Western, and went over to the Metropolitan Police Station to find out what I could about the McCormick matter. It was all pretty much as old Mike had told me. A Julian McCormick living on Long Island had suffered a $100,000 jewelry burglary in 1951. Twelve suspects had been arrested and released. The case was marked open and unsolved. Allied Casualty had been the insurance company involved. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Wonder if you could give me a little information about a claim your company handled in 1951. A man named Julian McCormick out on Long Island. Gee, well, long time ago. Uh, What about the McCormick claim? I might have some information on it. I don't know yet. It's a long chance. I'm at police headquarters, and I notice you investigated for the insurance company. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, sure, but it's kind of late today. Tomorrow, okay? Well, you can tell me this right now. Is there any reward being offered? Gee whiz, kind of falls my sails. How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be paid for it. Well, I said it was just a long shot. How about the reward? Well, that's pretty standard with us on cases like this. Yeah, I think it's 7500 something like that. I'm not sure. Where are you staying? New Weston. Well, I'll look it up, get the exact figure, and call you there. How'll that be? Fine, thanks. That'll be fine. You were part of a select group of actors, I think, who appeared in virtually all of the CBS programs in the 1950s. CBS was the last... The network that hung on the longest Just to radio. Just dramatic shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the workshop and escape and, and so many uh, things yes, like that. Yes, and then, and then do you Suspense. remember Armour Star Theater on Saturday mornings? Mm-hmm. You, I'm sure, like so many of the other actors out here, were doubling on some of the shows and oh, yes. were doing more than one show in, in a day. Yes, I used to say you hadn't really arrived until you had a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I think that radio is the ideal medium for a performer because... If 12 million people were listening, you were giving 12 million performances. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that it had to go, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. That was Parley Bear with Chuck Shaden in 1984. Bear is best remembered on radio as playing Deputy Sheriff Chester Proudfoot on Gunsmoke, as well as Mayor Roy Stoner on The Andy Griffith Show. Almost 30 years before this interview, Bayer voiced a high-powered defense attorney, while Hans Conried voiced an arrested arsonist in a dollar episode called The Bennett Matter. Well, I thought we ought to talk about this thing while there's still time. If it's okay with you, Mr. Eggleston. It's okay with me, Dollar. I'll be right here. Still time for what? To get your point of a break, Foley. Oh, that's a real good one, that is. You sit on a witness chair all morning, you tell him what a bad boy I am, then you walk in here and tell him you want to give me a break. I do. Uh, 
Go away. Uh, now, wait a minute, George. It won't hurt to listen to oh, him. Oh, you're a great one. You, I'm the guy who's sitting in this cell. Both of you can walk out of here and have a good steak for dinner tonight. All right, George. Uh, listen to him. This isn't a courtroom. Another regular character actor was Forrest Lewis, who was the man on the other end of the call with Dollar. Gee whiz, kind of falls my sails. How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be And paid if you for. listen closely, you can also hear Forrest Lewis portraying old Mike Karen at the hospital. When the doctor gave me the news, I got to thinking. I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. Uh, it's just that I had a wife once, a long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah. A smart thing the production team built into the dialogue of the McCormick matter was having Frank Porter know who Johnny Dollar was when he phoned. That helped build audience credibility. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Parley Bear was cast by Jack Johnstone in these recurring roles due to his wide range of vocal abilities. Johnstone worked with a select group of actors and actresses who could give him multiple roles per week. Here's Roberta Goodwin again talking about Jack Johnstone and his production methods. He'd first go in and everyone would sit around a huge table. The whole cast would sit around the table, have some donuts, have some coffee, and read through to do a read-through. And then they'd do another read-through with a stopwatch because they had to allow time for commercials, even back then. And then they'd do a walk-through, and then they'd get ready to record it. Then I had to leave the room, go upstairs and get in the sound booth. And then I would sit in the sound booth where the sound, not the men who made the noise, but the men who recorded it, the engineers would sit. And then I'd watch the show up from the sound booth while they recorded it. You did it on tape then, rather than live. Yeah, yeah. they taped it. And we're talking about sound effects that were essentially, that were not live. I mean, they didn't have a band there, did they? No. They had them on cartridge or on Matt, tape. if you can picture one whole corner of a huge, and I mean a huge room, and we're talking about 60 feet long by about 40 feet wide, completely covered with that acoustical tile floor to ceiling and then carpeted with very thick pile rugs so that no sound would be heard. One whole corner is taken up with about five or six turntables, thing of bells that hung down, different doors that would open and close, big doors and little doors, cowbells, oh, all sorts of paraphernalia so the sound man could make any noise that he wanted to. One joke went, there was supposed to be a special sound effect come on and instead of the right sound effect at the right moment, you heard the flush of a toilet come over the air. So from then on, one of the jokes in the studio was if somebody made a mistake, you'd reach up in the air and pull on an invisible cord to simulate pulling on the toilet cord. That was the local joke in there. If somebody made a boo-boo, you'd reach That's up great. and punk you know. Well, what can you tell me about Jack Johnstone? Now, he, he was involved... I don't know if he was involved in the first show back in 1949, but he certainly was more closely related to that series than anybody else. Well, all the time I've ever went down or being aware of the show he was always there the two scripts i have dated 55 and 57 both have his name down here as being producer director as long as dad was there he was there what do you remember about him and his his directing methods oh uh, he was marvelous to watch he would sit behind a lectern uh, on a high stool and he would have the script in front and sometimes he would remind me of a snake he would weave back and forth on this on the stool giving what they call cues he would have to cue the music cue a sound effect cue the actor by rather pointing at them 
and sometimes he'd be like an orchestra leader and he would just it was hypnotizing to watch him as he, he brought everyone together and worked everyone through that's literally what he did he was the director of the program like an orchestra leader he orchestrated all these different individuals till they got the finished product that he was a wonderful man was he authoritarian yes yes in other words when he told you to do something you did it yes yes when he said quiet this was it everybody that he met it, yeah, and he was uh, just had a wonderful personality. How did he get along with your father? Oh, got along very well. We'd dine at his house, and like I said, I went to school with his daughter, and we would, you know, she'd spend the night my house, I'd spend the night over at their house. Of course, to us, uh, our fathers weren't any different than the plumber, the mechanic. The police station and pulled out the mug on Joe Panny once more, hoping to get a line on some friends or relatives of his where he might be staying. Up till then, things had been going pretty routine. Then a clerk from the parole offices stepped across the hall. Hi, Mr. Dollar. Hi. Thought it was you I saw in here. I wasn't sure. How's it going? Fine, fine. Talk to your friend Jojo Panny yet? Not today. Why? Well, you seemed awful anxious to talk to him, is all. I am. Why don't you go see him? You playing games? I've been trying to find out where he is all day. And I already told you. You what? Sure, I gave it to you half an hour ago when you phoned. When who phoned? Sure, about half an hour ago. Look, Joe Panny called in and told me his address. Yeah? I no sooner set down a phone and you call in and said, this is Johnny Dollar. Have you heard from Joe Panny? What? I said, yeah, and I told you his address. That's all. What address did you say? The Allen Hotel on 115th Street. Same place he was before. What's the matter? You forget? It took me ten minutes to get from the police station over to the Allen Hotel. Ten minutes of wondering who'd put in that call and use my name. I went up the stairs, two at a time, up to the second floor. And right at the top of the landing, I bumped into a dark-haired woman wearing a silver fur piece. Oh! Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you. It's all right. You hurt? No, not at all. Please, let me go past. I'm in a hurry. Yeah, I'd be in a hurry, too. What do you mean? The gun. What? You should carry it on the inside of your purse. Oh, I didn't... Suppose I take it. No, let go of me. Fingernails, oh. huh? Give it to me. All right, take it. She'd given it to me, all right, right on the side of the head. It didn't knock me out, but it did knock me off balance, so I tangled up with a hall table. And that gave her plenty of time to scurry down the stairs while I got out of the furniture and back on my feet. By the time I got down the stairs and out on the street, she was nowhere in sight. Hmm. No one yelled, I'm shot. No one did anything but what they were already doing. The five per week format continued until part five of the Silent Queen matter aired on November 2nd, 1956. Now, here's our star with a special announcement. Yes. I think you'll be glad to know that beginning Sunday, instead of five times a week, we'll be on the air only once a week, but with a complete half-hour story. Remember, that's beginning this coming Sunday. So join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The show moved to Sunday in the late afternoon. Bob Bailey continued to voice Johnny Dollar for Jack Johnstone's production until November 27, 1960, with the well-known West Coast contingent of supporting actors and actresses continuing to be heavily featured in the programs. Although Bob Bailey publicly stated that the audience would be glad to know that the production was switching to a half-hour format, considering the amount of positive mail the cast received 
behind the scenes, this production decision was clearly due to cost-cutting measures. For the 1955-56 season, Bob Bailey was paid a total of $300 for a five-part matter episode, which were recorded during a single-day session. That's roughly $2,760 when adjusted to current inflation rates. Expense account total, $265.91. Remarks, she wins. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Even in dying radio, the man was able to make what amounts to be $2,760 for one day's worth of work. For the sustaining six-part Cranesburg matter, Bailey was paid $360. This breaks down to $60 per 15 minutes of audio work. Well, if CBS Radio switched to a once-per-week format, the production team would only be creating 30 minutes of audio per week instead of 75, which would save the company a ton of money. William M. Robeson was a prolific CBS Radio producer and director of the day. He directed shows such as Escape and Suspense. Here he is with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran, in 1976. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear uh, did not create Suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, uh, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc. And uh, to give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. During the height of radio production, there were three main cities, New York, Chicago, and Hollywood, in which shows were created. Here's character actor Hans Conrad again talking about those locational differences. I primarily was a Californian. Yeah euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. <laughs> uh, indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio were primarily of a documentary sense and very often a more literate sense and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center uh, because the, uh, the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's and interesting. That's exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist uh, were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, uh, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their, their glamour, and since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, uh, there was a, a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our motion movie star, step into your living room, and the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors. Now, the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday uh, able actors who played part after part. The significance part. is that by 1960, dramatic radio as a business in America was on life support. CBS held on the longest, but in that year, network executives decided to shut down the last of the radio productions in Hollywood and switch the studios over to television production. The few shows that were hanging on were either canceled, like Have Gun, Will Travel, and Suspense, although Suspense was later revived, or they moved to New York. 
it was decided that yours truly Johnny Dollar would make the move, except that Jack Johnstone and Bob Bailey didn't go with the production. Johnstone did continue to send scripts across the country for use, but Bruno Zerato Jr. would now produce and direct in New York. I only wrote it. They moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. One followed the other. And the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the Suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. Bundy was my wife's name. Quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. For Bob Bailey, the end of Dollar signified both the end of his radio career and the end of his days as a leading man. Yeah, it is painful. It, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to, to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. And until uh, other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, the voice behind jobs, now, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. And especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He'd been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. And he weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half. And they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. Mm-hmm. No. And he said, but I am. I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six foot tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. It was sad. It was a very sad time when TV just kind of just wiped it out, so to speak. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers when they came in. What I've read, at least, is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy, and they said, no, 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 if you worked in radio now, you, you've got your own way of doing things, and this is TV. And actually, when you think that working in radio would give you a credential, back in the early 50s in, or, or mid-50s, it actually worked against you. It did, because if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. You relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that needed to be put in. Although you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in what came out from inside of you. You could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio his voice, his emotion. The next week, New York's version of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar took to the air, starring Bob Reddick. Johnny Dollar. Toby Tetrick, Johnny, over here at Northeast Indemnity. Well, good for you, Toby. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Just that I always have liked the nice big fees that that company of yours hands out on cases. Just happens that I can use one of them right now. I've been running a little short. And I don't get excited, Johnny. Now, what is it this time? Murder? Arson? Embezzlement? Well, it's... Oh, come uh... on, come on, Toby. What is it? Well, as a matter of fact, it's a robbery. Well, fine, fine. If I'm lucky, if I latch onto the loot, whatever it is, I'll collect my usual commission and be loaded again. Uh, Johnny... So tell me all. Now, what's the amount of the loss, hmm? Well, that's the trouble. It's only $5,000. 5000 Cash. Well, if it's only... Why, oh, you're kidding me, I hope, huh? Nope. Sorry. That's the full amount. Oh, now, look, Toby, that doesn't make sense. Robbery never makes sense. Well, how much of a commission can I possibly pick up on a loss of only five Gs? Johnny... Now, I don't mean to sound money-hungry. Oh, of course, I really am. 
But uh, look at it this way. If I tie myself up with this piddling little case, I might have to pass up something really lucrative. Listen, Johnny, it happened right here in Hartford, and it just happened. And from what little I know about the circumstances, it ought to be a lead pipe cinch for you. Oh, sure, they all are. Yeah, but if you're not tied up with anything else at the moment... Oh, come on, at least take a cab on over here and talk about it, huh? Okay, Toby, just to keep you happy. CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Reddick had the unenviable task of following Bailey, who, after almost $500 episodes, had made the role his own. Reddick would be replaced just six months later, as of June 25th, 1961, by the final Johnny Dollar, Mandel Kramer. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is George Hardy at Northeast Indemnity Association. Yes, George. Got a pencil and piece of paper? Sure. And write this down. Go ahead. 130-07-0583. Got it. So? He wants to see you. Who does? 130-07-0583 at State Prison. Oh, you know his name, George? No, but if it's who I think it is, well, Johnny, you just might find yourself going for the commission on 100,000 bucks. Mandel, it's great to have you here, and this show is particularly important to us, the Johnny Dollar Show, because most of it was set in Hartford. That's right, well, the insurance company. Of course, the show, the locale of the show is Hartford, because this is the insurance center of the country. And you'd send in your expense account. That was the format of the show, as well, I recall. Yeah, Johnny Dollar was an insurance company, Private Eye. Yeah. And the opening format of the show was the, t- the familiar telephone ring and Johnny Dollar. And then at the end of the show, he would submit his expense account for everything that had been uh, incurred during the solving of this particular case. And it ended up with the, uh, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yeah. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick. When there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time, you could work and did work seven days a week. But how do you do this? How do you get started? You know, I didn't know anybody in no, New York. That's right. I joined a telephone answering service, and they gave me a sheet listing the advertising agencies that produced the various dramatic programs. And so you would from talking to other actors, you know, that you would meet on the third floor of NBC. Incidentally, you know, nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another, because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. Everything is relative, and only in, in retrospect do you realize that. Exactly, exactly. People say, well, radio was really so much easier. But it wasn't really, Dick, because that was it. That was the medium at the time. That was the advertising medium. The pressures were there. And in many ways, radio was more difficult because you had only the one tool. You had only a voice to portray a character with. 
whereas in a visual medium like television, everybody has their, their own preconceived idea of what somebody looks like or what a lawyer looks like or what, what a police chief should look like or what a, what a hood or a gangster should look like or what a sexy young girl or a matronly woman. In radio, we ran the gamut. You know, you played everything. Sure. And you had to do it all in your head and let it all come out through your voice. And you couldn't do that unless your character was right. I'd heard of such things but never before quite believed them possible. But so help me, when I picked myself up on the edge of the wreckage of that cottage, most of my clothes were blown completely off. And yet by some miracle, I suffered no more than a couple of bruises and a slight headache. As for Danny, well, let's not go into that. He's paid for all his crimes. Expense account total, $349.40. And uh, don't forget my commission, in spite of the fact that a lot of bits and pieces of that money had to be pasted back together. Yours truly... Johnny Dollar. This is audio from the tip-off matter which starred Mandel Kramer and aired on September 30th, 1962. What you're hearing is audio from the final episode of any show broadcast during the golden age of radio. It aired on CBS and closed the American radio drama. For those actors and actresses that couldn't make the transition to television, films, or the stage, life after radio became one of hardship. Bob Bailey was no exception to this. My father had a drinking problem, and for almost 22 years, he controlled it by going to AA. But then, when my mother divorced him and they separated, and when radio died, and he saw his life kind of crumbling before him, he kind of gave up a little. And he went back to drinking quite heavily. And he lost his house and lost car and he couldn't hold down a job and then he just drifted away and I married and I looked for him but I was never able to locate him none of his friends knew I even tried through the studios and through the uh, William Morris agency all the different agencies and nobody knew where he was and then Nine years went by, and the phone rang one day, and then I picked it up, and he said, Hello, this is your dad. And I said, This is not funny, whoever's playing this joke on me. And he said, No, it's me. And he had been rehabilitated up at what they call Warm Spinks Rehabilitation Center. And for about two years, he was doing wonderfully. He was helping out at this rehabilitation center, helping other alcoholics to get back on their feet again. And then out of nowhere, he suffered this stroke. And since then, he's been in the rest home. Bob was a fine, fine fellow. No question about it. Uh, incidentally, he wrote one script. He got an idea for, as I recall, a Christmas story one time and asked if he might write a script. Well, that was fine by me. So uh, it was a good one. It is understandable why the networks moved into television so quickly. For example, the mutual broadcasting system was best known as the original network home of the Lone Ranger in The Adventures of Superman and the longtime radio residents of The Shadow. For many years, it was also a national broadcaster for Major League Baseball, the National Football League, and Notre Dame football. From the mid-1930s until the demise of the network, Mutual ran a highly respected news service accompanied by a variety of popular commentary shows. And during the 1970s, Mutual pioneered a national late-night call-in radio show that introduced the country to Larry King. However, Mutual never moved into television and operated exclusively as a radio network. 
This was due to the fact that although they held the largest number of coast-to-coast -coast radio affiliates of the four major networks, they operated between 1934 and 1952 as a cooperative, setting them apart from the corporate structure of the other networks. Therefore, Mutual never had the financial certainty to move into television. Back in December of 1928, NBC established the first coast-to-coast -coast radio feed, which allowed NBC to operate two distinct networks simultaneously, the Red and Blue Network. Until the early 1940s, NBC was far and ahead the largest of the three major radio networks. However, RCA, NBC's parent company, was forced to sell NBC's Blue Network due to antitrust action lawsuits filed by the Department of Justice on the last day of 1941. That Blue Network later became ABC. This monopoly breakup was a major reason behind NBC pioneering their television network in the mid-1940s. When NBC, CBS, and ABC moved quickly into television in the late 1940s and early 1950s, they did so to protect their financial interests, as Hans Conried mentioned. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see? But on that particular... Mutual was never able to move into television, and today, Mutual Broadcasting is defunct. But what's generally left unmentioned through the American history of television is the scorched earth that the networks left behind in the radio industry. A great many working people in radio, not just actors, but technicians, sound engineers, and others, were ruined. After his stroke, Bob Bailey was left paralyzed on one side of his body. Bob Bailey spent the last years of his life confined to a bed in a rest home and died at the age of 70 on August 13, 1983. Bob Bailey's post-radio career downfall was an extreme case, but he's certainly not the only one. In November of 1970, Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran sat down with famed suspense producer and director Bill Spear and asked him his opinion on the fall of radio. You know, the feeling that, uh, that I have about radio is that when television came in, Bill, people thought it was simply another dimension of radio. But it really wasn't. It was a separate medium, and so was radio. Radio was unique. And radio, as we're talking about it tonight, is gone. Now, how do you feel about that? Is someone at fault? That's a very, very tough one. I don't know. I suppose it comes down to a criticism of networks, or uh, networks certainly had to make a choice there. You can't be both listening to the radio and looking at the television, and I suppose they put their money on the chips of television at the time. I've always wondered why it had to be, but I guess that's it, there's just so many hours in the day. With the cancellation of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, after September 30th, 1962, the American radio drama's golden age came to a close. But radio drama didn't stay dead forever. back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, 
Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again, so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. You got to give them a reason for this. Next time on Breaking Walls, two men work to relaunch network radio drama shows in the 1970s. How do they get executives to buy in? Why didn't it last? And what changes in the way people consume audio in the 21st century lay the groundwork for a coming audio drama reboot? Today's episode of Breaking Walls could not have been possible without the interviews by Chuck Shaden, Dick Bertel, Ed Corcoran, Spurdvac, and John Dunning. Chuck's interviews are available at speakingofradio.com. You can find Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran's interviews at otrrsite.com by searching for the Golden Age of Radio program. John Dunning's interviews are located at the same site under John Dunning's interviews, and the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy can be found at spurvac.com. The complete list of interviewees today is Chuck Shaden with Hans Conried in January of 1971, with Norman Corwin in August of 76, with Virginia Gregg in March of 1984, with Parley Bear three days later in March of 84, and with Shirley Mitchell in October of 84. Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran were with Bill Spear in November of 1970, with Hans Conried in August of 71, Vincent Price in November of 72, Mandel Kramer in September of 74, and William N. Robeson in January of 1976. Spurback was with director Jack Johnstone on August 8, 1987 at the Thousand Oaks Library in California. And John Dunning's interviews were with Roberta Goodwin in February of 1982 and E. Jack Newman in May of 1982. The reading material used in today's episode was Raised on Radio by Gerald Nachman, Speaking of Radio by Chuck Shaden, On the Air, The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, and The Who Is Johnny Dollar Matter by John C. Abbott, who was also kind enough to edit this week's show. Thank you, John. As well as numerous articles from Radio Recall's archives, courtesy of Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club, whose website is mwotrc.com. The information I mentioned today on podcasting statistics can be found at edisonresearch.com. The music featured in today's episode was The Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Orchestra, Exotique Bossa Nova by Martin Denny, Pyramid of the Sun by Les Baxter, Sleepwalk by Henry René, New York City Blues by Peggy Lee, and Caravan by 80 Drums Around the World, as well as acoustic takes on Amerigo Moreno's original Yours Truly Johnny Dollar theme. You can find Breaking Walls on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've made it this far, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It'll help more people discover Breaking Walls, and you can find our Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line at thewallbreakers.com shop. The next time you hear my voice will be on January 15th, for Breaking Walls episode number 73, I'll offer a continuation of today's story as we pick up in 1973 and take us to 2018 and beyond. I hope that you spend 2018 doing whatever you most want to do. 
I truly believe, and from my life experiences, it's confirmed this, the only way to achieve anything that we want to in life is to put ourselves out there beyond our comfort zones. It is uncomfortable, and that is the point. If I can assist you in any way, please reach out to me at jamesatthewallbreakers.com. And keep getting out there, guys. Keep breaking those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 72. Until January 15th, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much and sincerest best wishes for the new year. This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.